Welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm Curtis Lockhart. On each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss key trends in global development and the world of cities, including the role charter cities and innovative governance will play in humanity's new urban age. For more information, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. I'm Jeffrey Mason, researcher at the Charter Cities Institute. Joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Jared Rubin, professor of economics at Chapman University. He's an economic historian and co-author of How the World Became Rich, The Historical Origins of Economic Growth, a rich presentation of several decades of research on modern economic growth. Jared's co-author, Mark Koyama, was a guest on the Charter Cities podcast in November 2020, and I strongly recommend his episode on state capacity, religious toleration, and political competition as a supplement to this episode. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you for listening. Hi, Jared. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So Robert Lucas, he once famously quipped that once one starts thinking about the causes of economic growth, it's it's hard to think about anything else. So first, let me say thank you to, to you and Mark for doing a lot of the hard work for us in, in, in writing this book. Uh, thanks. That's uh, nice of you to say. So, so let's jump in. So this is, this is a really sort of impressive collection of sort of what all of the different sort of arguments are about where growth comes from what drives it, why it happens in some places and, and not others. And sort of one of the, the big arguments that, that people have put forward is, is, is culture, which is sort of a tricky subject to tackle and sort of talk about when we sort of figure out what, what actually is culture. Joel, Joel Makir's book, uh, Culture of Growth, is, is probably the most sort of well-known treatment of, of this subject. So what do you think economists have to offer in, in the study of, of, of culture, and what does this sort of increased focus on culture mean for, for economic history? Yeah, no, this is, I think, important both to clarify what we mean by culture, but also to you know, talk, about, talk about this in the sense that you know, it, there's been a lot of growth in this literature. Yeah, so you, know, you mentioned Moikir, and that's right. I think he's the person that at least very recently in the last you know, decade or so, that book is a 2016 book, has really kind of emphasized this link between culture and growth. You know, so somebody like Joe Henrik recently had a book that also does the same, but looking at very, very different aspects of culture in, in some, some context. But I think you know, if we want to think about the role that culture plays in economic growth, you could go back way further, you know, to you know somebody like Max Weber, whose you know very famous book, the the Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, is you know in this mold. A lot of the biggest names of the early twentieth century emphasize em- emphasize something along these lines. Now, to be very clear, and we do this in the book, you know, when we introduce the chapter on culture, for instance, we want to make it clear we are not defining culture or thinking about culture the way Weber and people in the early 20th and even before thought about culture, which really kind of took on a pretty Eurocentric view of the world, that there was something about European culture might have been Christianity. And, you know, it's it certainly, uh, this was still a period where Europe had colonized the rest of the world and people were trying to find explanations for this. And, you know, so maybe some type of superiority came in as their explanation. You know, I think 
you know, Eurocentric is actually a pretty kind word for, for this. You know, I mean, uh, some of these would just be straight up racist. That is not the way we are viewing culture. And it's not the way the, the current literature views culture. And I think, you know, the one thing we briefly discussed in the book is that over the course of the 20th century, for very good reason, these types of explanations that I was describing you know, that were in vogue in the beginning of the 20th century fell out of favor. And again, I, for good reason, they they didn't have there beyond just you know maybe the distaste of the racial or your even eurocentric element that's not really why because i mean i think that in the end as social scientists people that like to think that they're using something akin to the scientific method we should at least be willing to consider any type of explanation no matter how distasteful but these explanations just don't satisfy on a number of grounds. I mean, I think the most obvious thing is that Europe was not ahead for a very, very long period of time. It was certainly behind China, certainly behind the Middle East. Now, yeah, some aspects of culture changed, but not that much. And certainly something, you know, ascribing it to Christianity, I mean, certainly cannot really do a great job explaining why Europe was so far behind for so long. So... This kind, these kind of more static notions, or you know, really racialized or Eurocentric notions of culture, fell out of favor and again for good reason. But I think because they were so Eurocentric or you know just distasteful economists in particular. You know, so Mark and I are both economists; we're economic historians. Really took culture out of their models. If you look at a you know kind of a neoclassical model of in vogue in the seventies, eighties, you know, kind of Chicago school type stuff. You know, so somebody like Gary Becker tried to kind of rationalize culture within a framework that would be very much at ease and, you know, within these kind of neoclassical models, you know, economists would be familiar with these. More recently, and this is much more the last couple decades, even though it, it kind of began with people like Boyd and Richardson in the 1980s, who are, you know, more kind of like cultural anthropologists, we started looking at culture a little differently. You know, we think about it as the lens through which people view the world. And I don't think it's controversial to say that this differs across societies. And we can think of it as cultural groups, almost by definition, as groups who share, at least to some degree, this, this worldview, the, the way that we might take in inputs from the world and have outputs. And this is what somebody like Moikir latched onto. I just mentioned Joe Henrik. I think you know he's one of, if not the leader in thinking about cultural evolution these days and really how it affects economic developments. Um, certainly, he's the most well-known, and for good reason. His books are, are great and extremely readable. So what we've done in this book is look at is, you know, first off, we overview this literature. That's one of the things we do. We overview a number of literatures, and one of them is culture, because cultural explanations have become increasingly important in understanding why certain parts of the world have taken off and others have not. Now, there's a few reasons for this. By far, I think probably the most prominent is that culture is notoriously sticky. So cultural elements, you know, social norms, you know, a big thing that economists have looked at are trust norms, for instance, which we do think of as being essential to market developments. You have to be able to trust people that they're not going to, to rip you off. It's not just a matter of there being some government that's going to secure your property or you can sue somebody if they rip you off. It helps a lot for market interactions to happen if there's some degree of trust in society, especially of people that you don't know. 
And that's something that most societies in world history have not really had a great deal of. And most societies, and this is still true today, to some degree, you know, of course, you know, you trust people, you know, but also maybe extended family, you know, and even you, you can go much broader into, say, the kin group, which was kind of the, the main social unit in um, many parts of the world throughout much of, of uh, world history, including Europe until the medieval period. The question is, how do you how do you trust people that you don't know? And when you start being able to at least have some degree of trust, probably, you know, in, in typically supported by institutions that can punish people who violate that trust, that's when you can start really getting certain types of growth, certainly growth that is spurred on by trade. It, you know, it doesn't necessarily solve some of the big questions. So, I'm like, you know, the, the, big, the big question, which you know, I'm, I'm assuming we might get to at some point, is how did the world, and particularly Britain initially, become technologically developed? And how did, how did the rate of technological progress become so sustained? Because that's really the thing that needs to be explained. Moikir does, does try to explain this in terms of the culture that had emerged across Europe, not just in Britain. In, during the Enlightenment period, one that was you know, a culture that valued scientific progress, that valued the sharing of scientific ideas. He calls it the enlightened economy. These are all, you know, these are worldviews. So to go back to what we were talking about, it's not this. So, you know, Moikir's view ends up being that there was something that emerged in the culture of Europe in the Enlightenment period, but it, but his is very much, I would not consider it a Eurocentric type of idea and that, you know, he's really trying to explain something that emerged at a certain time. That's not, you know, inherent to Europe, but, you know, it, it's something that, that came about for various reasons. And so when looking at culture, you know, I think another thing that's important too is there are cultural elements that have emerged over time that have, that have also been harmful to to economic development, you know, again, trust norms being one work that both. So Mark and I have also done plenty of work on religion in the world that re religious authorities, you know, particularly we might think of as institutionalized religion has played in a variety of outcomes. You know, so Mark's done really good work, for instance, on the role that religious legitimacy played in persecution, medieval and early modern persecutions which are things that that we certainly would think have to do with political development, if not eventually economic development. In my own work, I've looked at the role that religious legitimacy has played in broader political and economic outcomes in the Middle East and Western Europe. And these are things that are you know, clearly imbued in culture. One thing that I think probably the most important point the book makes, though, is that when we're trying to think of, you know, so the title of the book is How the World Became Rich. When we're trying to think of how the world became rich, there's no real one element that is at the answer. A lot of it is about the interaction between elements. So, so for instance, the things I was just discussing was culture and institutions. There, These are things that in many ways are inseparable. You know, the institutional developments that we think of as important, those that, you know, protect property rights, that limit, you know, the, the ability of autocrats to just arbitrarily govern, things like this. These are these are, you know, in a sense, unthinkable without certain kind of kind of complementary cultural developments as well. You know, especially as we move towards, say, something like you know more democratic governance. You know, you have to have democratic norms, for instance, norms that respect the winners of elections. That where you know there's beliefs in the the elections will be fair and free, things like this. These these emerge in conjunction 
with institutions. And yeah, so I think when we're thinking about culture, that, you know, that's a very long-winded answer, but it's important to kind of know what we're talking about in this case, if we really want to say, because I just want to be very clear that we're not saying that there was just something about European culture that pushed it pushed it apart from the rest of the world. No, that, that was that was a really good answer. I, I was able to cross off about three questions, three or four <laughs> questions uh, that I, I was going to ask about there. But so so as as you mentioned, this this sort of story of of the emergence of of modern growth starts in Britain. Why why is that? Yeah, so I, I think the answer is similar to what I just said. So I think the 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 most important aspect of the answer we come to in this book is that there's no silver bullet. There are many things going on in Britain, all of which are going on in other parts of the world. So there are other books out there that will say, you know, that are pushing a certain answer for one of the questions we ask in this book. And they'll say, well, there are these other things in the literature. It can't be X, Y, and Z because, you know, for instance, it can't be coal. Because, yes, there was plenty of coal in the north of England. You know, can you bring that coal down from Newcastle into, you know, either to London or to the other industrial cities in the north. It was easily accessible. Well, it can't be that because Germany, the Ruhr Valley, had a ton of easily accessible coal. China had a ton of easily accessible coal. We can say the same thing about, say, something like limited governance, which Mark and I actually think is really important. You know, when we think about limits that are placed on executive authority. So this is something that emerges in the course of the 16th and 17th century, where parliament becomes much more important. It becomes sovereign. And it's really the, the king or queen cannot rule without the consent of parliament. And if they try to, as uh, the Stuart Kings did in the 17th century, they find a rebellion on their hands. We find that to be really important. But on the other hand, a place like the Dutch Republic had possibly even more limited governance. You know, Parliament was very supreme in the Dutch Republic. There, there in a sense, almost really was no executive power. There was an executive that was extremely weak. So you could make the same case for that. Certainly, if you want to say... You know, take Moikir's argument in Culture of Growth seriously, where you say, you know, this was a pan-European phenomenon that he's describing, at least mainly Western Europe, where you, know, you have these Enlightenment ideas spreading. I mean, that's certainly not just a an English thing. Yes, there were important Englishmen that were part of this, you know, Isaac Newton probably being the most famous. But this was something, you know, you have Descartes in France, Leibniz in Germany, you know, people that were um, equally as important to this progression. So again, well, it, it can't just be that. There's much more. So there's, you know, one thing that we also note that the literature says is, you know, that England had this large internal market. So, you know, you have these goods that are now being produced. You don't have as, you know, much of a necessi- necessity to rely on trade. You know, you both have the internal market within Britain. You also have the colonies. Again, there were plenty of other countries that also had large internal markets. So, you know, France was a, an even bigger country than, than Britain at the time. Uh, yeah, there's there's actually a number more that we consider, including access to the Atlantic, which is again again a big one, but obviously not the only country with access to the Atlantic. And you know, Spain and Portugal had not just access to the Atlantic, but a head start by more or less a century over Britain, and you know, certainly in its colonial enterprises as well. The key, though, that we describe is that at least the way industrialization happened in Britain which again, it does not, it was not the way it really happened anywhere else, which is another key point. But the way it happened in Britain required the combination of these things. It's not just that one was necessary. And it's possible 
even though we don't really come down hard on which ones of these were necessary, it's possible that all of them were necessary, certainly for it to happen the way it did. Another one that I should note, because this is something that Moikir is actually working on currently, and I know he has a forthcoming book, I believe, with uh, Morgan Kelly and Cormac O'Grado, which appears to be very uh, interesting and is built on their work, are the presence of skilled workers. So England had a lot of them. This is a point Moikir has been making for a couple of decades now on the eve of industrialization, in part because of you know, weak guild regulations. But you know, there's a variety of reasons they go into. But this is some, the type of thing that then allowed, once you start getting these innovations, for them to be really used. And thus, the rate of technological progress is more likely to increase over time. Again, not something unique to England, though. You know, there were other places, especially you know, the free cities of Central Europe, that had skilled workers in abundance. I think, though, that... This is something we try to push in the book, not just with the case of Britain, but you know, more broadly when we're thinking about economic growth, is that when you're writing a book, as both Mark and I have, on something as big as you know, these big questions, and I'm talking about other books that we've written, most authors, for very good reason, try to push kind of one story, not necessarily by any means ignoring other stories, but you know, you, you're trying to push, push something. And that's the way that we, I think we should be doing it. That's the way science advances. But in doing so, what often happens is that there's not a consideration for how these various theories interact with each other, how Moikir's theory interacts, say, with Deirdre McCloskey's theories of, you know, kind of more cultural rhetorical change that happened in, you know, early modern England and the Dutch Republic, or how these, I mean, how these theories interact with Bob Allen's theories on industrialization, which, you know, certainly Moikir does address because these are kind of the two competing theories. But if you look at more broad theories, so somebody like, you know, Joe Henrik's theory that looks at changes in the medieval church, we don't really have a good conception for how his theories then would interact with these others. And that's something we try to do in this book, say, look, you know, there are elements of truth to nearly all of these theories. Now, I should say, to be clear, we're not we're not just kind of saying that we buy all of these theories or we buy all of them equally. There are some we are less prone to buy, particularly you know, ones that really blame everything on colonialism. We do go into colonialism in the book. We do think it played an important role, certainly in, in making those parts of the world that were colonized poorer and, and slower to catch up. So we're certainly not saying colonialism was a benign thing or definitely not saying it was a good thing. It was almost certainly bad on the places that were colonized. But there are plenty of dots that have not been connected in the literature on why that would then lead to industrialization or the modern economy as we know it. So, you know, that's just an example of something that, you know, is out there, but we're maybe a little less, we place a little less emphasis on. But we should say, you know, these all these other explanations, including ones based on demography, you know, how you know having maybe smaller families over time, based on geography, how they interact with each other, it ends up being kind of the the center of of what we argue is how the world became rich. There's not just one thing we want to talk about, and this is as true. You know, your question was about Britain for Britain as it is, you know, other places that eventually caught up and maybe even surpassed Britain, like a place like the US, or places also places that have not caught up. Uh, you know, so we also we also want to understand that. I mean that in, in many ways that's even more important to understand is why did why were some places able to catch up and in case, some cases really quickly and others were not. I think you have my note sheet. Uh, you, you, <laughs> <laughs> I had a question in there uh, I was gonna ask about McCloskey and her question. So I'm I, I'm I'm curious how 
and there's a couple things in, in your answer that I want to follow up on. But to, to start with this one, how does that sort of argument about sort of liberal speech norms fit into this story? Like, is, is, is that sort of primarily a sort of functional tool for like technological dissemination or like what's 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 sort of the channel at, at play there? So, I mean, I, I think it matters, you know, what are you talking about? So if you want to, you know, so Deirdre's argument is that, you know, these, these rhetorical norms changed in particular, she actually places the Dutch as, you know, the first place it changed in uh, the Dutch Republic. And then this move to England, you know, in the early modern period. And then with these, so these rhetorical changes that she describes were ones that in a sense favored favored commerce or favored merchant activity, things that, you know, historically, if you were in finance, for instance, you know, and often, you know, especially in the medieval period of medieval Europe, that you were probably Jewish, if you were, these were people that were viewed as the scum of the earth, you know, the usurers. So usury was in that period, you know, defined as more or less any interest, you know, usurers were placed on the same scale as like rapists and murderers as, you know, in the lowest levels of hell. I think very rightfully, she she makes this this claim that it's really hard to imagine a modern economy emerging where those types of rhetorical norms are are at play. I 100% agree with that. I, you know, the, and this is this is where I think culture, when we're talking about culture, that's how I think about culture. Is that you know when we're thinking about when we're talking about worldviews, there in a sense you know what she's describing there is a worldview where certain professions are viewed very negatively, and of course we still have that today. There are definitely professions today that are viewed much more negatively than others. There are certain professions that get you plenty of reputation and and everything else, and that changes over time too, of course. I mean, we see that in our own society. Now, I think that when, you know, so her argument then goes into how, how these changes, you know, and she, she, you know, she has three books, three very large books on this. So, you know, I'm, I'm, there's no way I'm going to do her arguments justice here, but you know, how, when, once, once you start to get these types of changes in a society, that's when you start to get broader economic changes that do. So, you know, when we look at the Dutch Republic, for instance, Dutch growth is not really based on technological advancement. It's based on merchant activity, mercantile activity. The Dutch Republic is a pretty small place that amazingly becomes the world's economic leader for a good 100, 150 years, which for such a small place, I mean, at the time we're talking just maybe a couple million people, becomes highly urbanized. It becomes the center of trade, the center of finance. So the Amsterdam financial markets are probably the most important in Europe, eventually eclipsed by London. And not just Europe, the world, even the, the Dutch even get, you know, a colonial, you know, they have colonial enterprises, you know, so Indonesia, Indonesia, for instance, was a, you know, a Dutch colony. So, you know, one of the questions is how does this really small country become so, so wealthy and really in a way that, you know, I would, I would not describe it. And I don't think Mark would either as modern economic growth in the sense that we really don't get the technological advancements that become so important to modern economic growth. But it's wealthier than just about any place had been in world history up to that point. And it's right on the eve of all these advancements occurring. So oftentimes when people try to explain, and I've done this in my own work as well, the, the modern uh, where the modern economy comes from, 
you look at not just Britain, but what we call, you know, the Northwestern Europe, because Belgium to a lesser extent was there as well, certainly, even though it was Spanish for a very long time and that had some negative consequences, you know, as a Spanish colony in a sense. But for the most part, we need to explain why the Dutch became wealthy and then the English became wealthy. McCloskey then, you know, takes this into the um, mercantile activity. I, I don't think there's as strong of a connection between technological innovation, even though certainly, if, you know, you were to kind of combine her and Moikir's arguments, the way people talked about innovation, the way people, and also, you know, so, something that she brings up that, you know, others have brought up as well is that if you look at a place like the Roman, the Roman empire, which at points, you know, could have been on the verge, you know, you might say might've been on the verge of some type of takeoff that certainly per capita wealth or per capita income rather was a little higher than most other places in the pre-modern era. One thing that was really uh, negative that w- probably prohibited such a takeoff was that work with one's hands or you know hard work was looked down upon. You know, the, if you were to become well, the the ideal was to become wealthy and go buy a villa and then not work. In the case of the Roman Empire, it would probably be buy a bunch of slaves and have them do the work for you. You know, the type of technology that ends up taking off is people that, you know, that see a problem, whether it be in in textile manufacturing or metallurgy or something like this. And because they have an intimate knowledge of how these machines that, you know, these, in some cases, very, very old machines, you know, machines that, that looked not that much different than they had six, six, seven hundred years ago, especially in textiles. How can we improve those? That's something that you don't get or you are unlikely to get, I should say, you don't want to say don't, but if uh, hard work or, you know, the, the idea of work in general is something that you don't want to do, you know, so eventually what happens is the people that ends up, end up running these factories and these larger and larger plants, they're work. you know, they're, they're people that they either came across an idea of some type, or they were figure out how to adapt the idea, make it a little better. And again, that's something that, cultural norms that give people like that social prominence certainly facilitate that process. And that's where I think McCloskey is particularly good. And, and, you know, and, and I would say her explanation fits right in with a lot of the other stuff we've been saying again, but I want to make it clear, you know, we view nothing as a, none of the explanations as silver bullets. Sure. We talked a bit there about technology and it seems it, it, it strikes me that technology has an interesting relationship with one of the stories for growth that we, we haven't talked too much about yet, and that's geography. So, right, so people say disease burden, how, how easy uh, in a particular place it is to transport things, what resources are you endowed with, et, et, et cetera, has, has an important impact on, on economic outcomes. And there's an argument that I've, I've, I've heard before. I think semi-seriously that Lee Kuan Yew's uh, Singapore, for instance, wouldn't have been possible without air conditioning as sort of a fun little case study in, in, in sort of this theory. So so historically, how, how much has technological advancement been sort of a tool for shifting the relative values of the relative advantages and disadvantages of of differing geographic endowments? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that the question you ask is exactly the right one in that geography-based explanations, one that are just purely based on geography, that, you know, whether it be you know, climate or, you know, having really hilly terrain or, you know, just about anything else you can think about, have a massive problem in that they can't really explain reversals of fortunes because 
you know, stuff like institutions, stuff like culture, stuff like demography, that stuff can change over time. And maybe, you know, it's when that changes that you get takeoff or you, you get a reversal. Geography doesn't really change. So those types of explanations have a pretty hard time explaining, say, why China, Song China was, you know, light years ahead or Abbasid Iraq was light years ahead of Europe at the time. And then Europe eventually took off. The geography of these places didn't change. But that said, as you're kind of alluding to here, geography can interact with institutions or technological development, cultural development in a variety of ways. And I and I think it particularly as we go into a little bit in the book can interact with political institutions, like maybe why you get large empires versus fractured states, things like this. Geography might and almost certainly does play a role in that. But when you're talking about technological developments, one thing in you kind of use these words that it can do is, you know, it can overcome the curse of what you might consider somewhat bad geography or, you know, a bad stroke of geography, like the geography of a certain region might be good in one in, on one margin, but bad on another. So, you know, we particularly would think of things like transport technologies as as being able to do so, you know, so when when you get things like uh, the locomotive, especially the steam locomotive beginning in the mid 19th century, that makes you know that that cuts geographic distance down a lot and what economists would call economic distance so you know how two towns for instance are economically related becomes in many ways much you know almost trivial when those towns are connected by by rail eventually you know when we think about the 19th century and particularly what um, have been described as second industrial revolution technologies so late 19th century technologies there's a huge boom in information communication technologies you know the telegraph becomes wide sufficiently widespread you know that's a period where you start getting the telephone things like this that again one thing these can do is really make certain geographic endowments that at one point in time might have been a bad thing for certain types of growth, much less important. You know, changes, uh, certainly uh, changes in the technology of shipbuilding would be another big one. Canals are a huge one for this. They connect places that were not connected before, uh, particularly in the pre-rail era where if you wanted to to move goods of any type of size from one area to another, you were probably doing it via ship. So yeah, this this is right. I think that you know these two things are going are are highly related. Because on the other hand, while you know we're talking about the quote unquote curse of bad geography, there are certain attributes of geography that are also good for economic development. I you know the one I just mentioned is being being near a source of of water. You know, there have been many, there have been some explanations that, you know, say England or, you know, Britain had this advantage of, you know, on the one hand being an island, meaning it was harder to attack, but also eventually once the Atlantic opened, it was right there to take advantage of those things. So that that's a geographical endowment that again, that whose advantages became apparent only later. So that, that would be one instance where we'd say, all right, England might have had a geographic endowment that, that benefited. Again, though, you know, going back to something you mentioned earlier, obviously not the only place that had that, that advantage. In fact, you know, the Iberian countries had it to an even more important extent, I think. So that's it, obviously not the only thing going on. But yeah, I mean, but we should say, you know, to kind of circle back to the beginning of what I was saying, geography is not going to be a great answer if it's the only thing you consider. But if you think about how it interacts with some of these other other features, um, I think then it becomes part of the story. So an- another interesting element uh, that, that you discuss, and I, I kind of see see it as a almost hybrid of both 
culture and technology in, in the sense that it's a social technology is law. And so some of the work uh, that you highlight in there by Laporta, De Solana, Schleifer, and Vishni is, is on common law, which they argue sort of is more historically favorable to growth. And there's sort of an obvious relationship here to sort of the rise, early rise of of Britain. But some I think some folks have also sort of raised the argument that at least in modern times, countries endowed with these sort of common law systems produce sort of more litigious societies, which sort of can could potentially be harmful for the maintenance of, of state capacity, which can kind of have these knock-on effects for sort of growth supporting investments. So so how how do you sort of evaluate this legal system argument regarding growth? Is 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 law just like a proxy for for culture? What what do you think is going on there? Yeah, no, I, I don't think law is just a proxy for culture. I think that law become is is very important and it becomes enmeshed with a society's institution. So even societies that are based on English common law end up having, you know, legal systems that look, you know, somewhat distinct from each other. Um, the same would be true of civil law, you know, various uh, from various European countries. We think of law as being important on a few mar particularly important, I should say, on a few margins. You know, so you know, so one of one is just you know basic protections of rights. This is something that comes down to law, and it's also not just not just law, but the way law is adjudicated and the the credibility that one can actually take one to court, especially when one when the person you might be taking to court is you know your social superior or somebody like that. These are things that you know we we think of as basic to the rule of law, and you know by that you know there's a ton of definitions out there, but you know we could say something simple like you know, no one's above the law that there is a law, whatever it is, that is created by whatever process it's created. But whatever that process is, it's widely recognized that that is the way that law is created. It's not something that can just be thrown out by an autocrat or something like that. And then once the law is created in such a way, everyone's subject to it, including the elites. When you have that, you have the capacity to interact economically with just about anyone with some background assurance that they're not going to cheat you. And again, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview here, trust norms are helpful for this, but a society can't cannot have a true market economy just based on trust. There does have to be something undergirding it, and that's where the legal system plays or can play an enormous role. On the other hand, you know, you look at countries that had yeah, so so you know, I I both Mark and I really like the work of Timur Karan, who's done a lot of work on the Islamic legal system, and you know there were a bunch of of laws in the you know the Islamic legal system that when they were created were actually very very pro business in the sense that you know they were they were formulated at a time where the Islamic world was among leading economic development, so there was a large corpus of merchant law. Inheritance law becomes something that becomes really important, but these are things that also end up not are being very, very, very slow to change over time. And as the world's changing, the law does not kind of catch up with it. And I think there's a variety of reasons for that. And my own my own personal bias is that because you know religious clerics uh, provide a certain amount of legitimacy, you know, rulers just kind of left them alone to do their to do their thing in return. Um, and you know they made a lot of rents on on providing law in such an area. But you know, to, the reason I bring this up in response to your question is that when you have these types of laws, 
on the books, ones that are not really kind of reacting to developments around the world. You know, so somebody like Quran says, you know, there's there never ends up being an indigenous set of corporate laws, for instance. So, you know, the Islamic world never gets the corporation. This is one of the you know, primary, if not the most important development in business history in the, the last, you know, at least 500 years in, in the West that allows for, eventually allows for things like joint stock companies. You know, actually it's not just allows for it. It kind of goes, you know, it, it, it emerges in, in conjunction with the growth of joint stock companies that then allow for exploration everywhere that, you know, that well, this stuff, when you don't have law like this, there are limited, there are limited, there's limited capacity to say either grow business or engage in widespread trade and down the line, especially if we think about law where in a society where there's not rule of law, as I've defined it, where there are certain people that are, are, are above the law or the law really doesn't apply, where property rights are therefore uh, extremely weak, that then decreases massively the incentive to in, either invest capital, to innovate, uh, because the, the fruits of innovation, you, know, you might not be able to to reap. And, you know, these are all things we think of as being really important for the growth of the modern economy. So, so I, I mean, I personally, I'd put law near the top of, you know, the really important things to think about, and at least in terms of first order explanations, of course, that, you know, why certain societies have different types of legal systems. And it's not just the colonial inheritance, as you you mentioned, the Laporta at all articles, where that's a big part, part of what they're saying, essentially, it's like the English spread common law everywhere, which, you know, they did. I mean, I'm, this is not to say that they're necessarily wrong in the way they're thinking about it, but in terms of how these these uh, legal systems evolved over time, I think is one of the important things, though, again, not the only thing. That, that's probably something I'll, I will assume I'll say a, a few times when we're talking about this. There's no one thing that we, we focus on, but it's among the important for sure. Yeah, the legal domain, I think, has been sort of particularly interesting to us at, at, at CCI because in sort of the modern era, you have some very interesting case studies of sort of using uh, different sort of systems of law as technologies. Dubai and, and elsewhere, they've sort of created these sort of financial centers with the basis being we are sort of going to sort of explicitly use, you know, English common law as, as the basis or uh, looking again at, at, at Singapore using the British uh, high courts for I think around 20, 25 years after independence. So it's, it's interesting to see these kind of applications of law as a, as a growth producing technology. But one thing, so we, we sort of talked about where growth comes from and, and sort of how, how we've gotten here, uh, where, where we are now. But where we are now is, is interesting because we've sort of seen in the modern world, uh, or at least in the advanced economies of the modern world, a slowdown of, of, of growth in, in recent decades. And so uh, Dietz Volrath has an interesting book on this uh, called Fully Grown, where he sort of argues that this isn't necessarily a bad thing and it's, it's sort of a sign of success. And I, I, I kind of take that to mean that sort of the low-hanging fruit of sort of material well-being and innovation has, has been picked. So do, do you sort of agree with this view that the sort of current growth slowdown we're seeing shouldn't be as much of a cause for a concern as conventional wisdom suggests? Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, yes, I agree. Certainly when we're talking about the already developed world that, yeah, and I, I mean, I think that for reasons you indeed you know, mentioned that when we're talking about 
the, 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 there really is this idea that I think that also applies when you look at it on the, the converse, the countries that have grown rapidly recently, there's just, there was so much low hanging fruit. I mean, China would be, I think the obvious example, you know, you essentially had a billion people that were underutilized workers. So, you know, all it, all it really took was some degree of market reforms, you know, that even within a fairly autocratic and repressive system to really, you know, both, you know, both for the internal market and for external markets to really utilize that labor. And frankly, there's still a lot of low hanging fruit in China. So while growth has slowed a little bit there, you know, I'd still expect it to outpace Western growth for decades to come. Yeah, no, I think that that's right. Now, I mean, I think that, you know, there's also the possibility that new general purpose technologies will also change this pattern. You know, so something like AI does hold that promise, even though there's you know, a lot of downsides to it as well. Uh, some of these, some some of these uh, technologies will also have to, you know, consider climate concerns. You know, so this is obviously something that I think you know might be the most important thing for the next generation, which doesn't always, though it can be conducive to growth. You know, I don't think that, you know, we have to think of there's being just purely a trade-off between economic growth and a better, you know, a cleaner climate. These, there are, there's plenty of good work out there that suggests that these two things can be um, complementary to each other because the real important question for me is, is not so much, you know, how much Western Europe or the U.S. is growing, but how much of the rest of the world is growing? Because if you really, you know, so one thing that we stress, you know, so the book's called How the World Became Rich. You know, we're, we're not idiots. We understand the entire world is not actually rich. And it is way richer than it has ever been. Way more people and uh, certainly a way greater fraction of the world is not at the basest of poverty levels, as has ever been the case. But there are about a billion people that are still very much at, you know, at the lowest levels of poverty. So the way to get out of that is growth. And, and to be clear, you know, it, it, so in a place like Britain, it took a while for growth to then translate into real wage increases. In other places, you know, and since then, the that has that lag has has lessened. I mean, take a place like South Korea. You know, they just started you know growing in the 50s, 60s. Now it's one of the wealthiest countries in the world in terms of per capita income. You know, these two things can happen. If you know, if we want to talk about you know, I think the, the two big parts of the world are Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. That's where a, a large fraction of the world's you know poorest people live today. That's where growth really matters. In my in my opinion, and yeah, and 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 to you know to kind of circle back to your the your opening question, there's still a lot of low hanging fruit in those places. We should expect there to be, and maybe you know you can describe it as a quote unquote one time boom, but those one time booms can last a century. Now we're over that one time boom in uh, you know Western Europe and in North America and places like that. But there's plenty of parts of the world, even you know, it's still true in large parts of Latin America. There's still going to be you know, there's a lot of room for growth. Certain parts of Southeast Asia, still a lot of room for growth. And again, this is not to say that I, I don't necessarily take a purely pessimistic view that that we that there can't even be further growth. I do think that there are is the potential for general purpose technologies like the types of technologies that came about during both the initial period of industrialization, but even more importantly, in the 19th century, the late 19th century, where we get the second wave of industrialization that really incorporated science 
and you know, revolutionize information communication technologies. I think all of these, you know, th there are things that, frankly, I don't even know about. You don't know about. Nobody knows about, or maybe you know, the you know, very very few people have even thought about. You know, it might be something that is invented by somebody who's currently eight years old or something like that. That that takes us to a very different place in the world, and that that's what the history of the last couple hundred years would suggest is that you know th those things come about, but where they come about is is not random either and it's not just a matter of hoping that there's some stroke of genius that is actually what the world the the, the situation the world was like prior to the mid 18th century you would get these random strokes of genius that would happen and this is kind of the idea behind the malthusian trap that you would get these random strokes of genius but because technological development was not sustained you don't get sustained economic development. We now have sustained economic development, clearly in the, the in the, the richest parts of the world as well. You know, if you think about the state of technology that you live in versus what your parents lived in, very different, and what you grew up in versus you know what your, you know your children you know going to be very very different. That's still going to be the case probably for the foreseeable future. Um, now, it's not again completely obvious that this is going to lead to sustained economic growth, but it just, just takes a technology or two for that to happen. And I, I would be, I, I place myself on the more optimistic end of that, again, with the ca massive caveat that such technologies almost certainly have to also address climate issues, especially, especially as other parts of the world become rich and begin using more fossil fuels and, you know, and it is, and which is, I would view as completely within their rights. You know, there's no reason to think that, that certain parts of the world became rich. Now we got to stop it because we have this climate process. We can solve both these things at the same time. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. And, and that's something I think it's, it's interesting to see how that's playing out in sort of the, the international development scene right now, where, where you have folks from sub-Saharan Africa, from South Asia, elsewhere, were saying, you know, you, 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 you can't pull the ladder yeah. up behind yeah. you on us. That's, that's not right. So I wanted to ask a sort of couple sort of technical type questions for sort of how we should think about, uh, how we should be thinking about growth. So you, you probably saw recently Thomas uh, Philippon put out a paper saying that uh, total factor productivity growth is, is linear, not exponential. If, if, if you're familiar, if you saw that paper come out, do you think that's that's true? And if so, what does that change sort of how we think about the history and, and future of growth? I I will say this with the caveat this at the beginning. I've not read that paper in depth, so I'm not going to comment on that paper. And I, I you know, as with with any type of paper or book. I, I, I should probably read that soon in case I'm asking that again. Um, you know, it, may, it, might, it might change the way I view things because that definitely goes against how my, my, my take on, you know, well, TFP growth, you know, we might say productivity growth has been historically. Actually, you know, maybe I should also caveat that and that historically it pretty much was like that, you know, prior to the, the big takeoff. You know, TFP growth was not just linear, but it was practically zero. You know, you might get a, a bump here, a bump there, but for the most part, TFP growth was not going to be that great where we could see that. Where we have seen takeoffs, though, it, uh, linear would be a very hard way to describe, you know, the takeoff that was happening in, you know, 19th century Britain that 
you know, even in play, you know, certainly in places like in China in the last 40 years, again, with the massive caveat that I need to, that um, I don't know the exact argument that uh, Philip Hahn is, you know, a great economist. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure that it's a very well done paper is making. The, these are not periods of, of linear productivity growth. And now that said, I think it's quite possible we have come to a place in the West, at least, and not just the West. Now it's obviously you know East Asia is and the vanguard and many of these uh, you know techno- technological developments. But we'll say maybe the developed world, where because there has been somewhat of a slowdown in general purpose technologies, that you might get linear productivity growth. Yeah. You know, so some yeah. So that's and th- that's for me at least is you know in the absence of this paper how i would think about it is that you initially get massive growth when you get new general purpose technologies that is certainly not linear over time the the returns to those technologies end up diminishing which might lead you to a state where it's more linear which at that point you know you're no longer seeing massive changes over time as you do when the, these types of technologies are initially introduced no, that, that that makes sense. I I, I think I'm I'm sort of sympathetic to, to your to your view on that as well. Another sort of interesting trend in economics is is that folks are trying to use randomized control trials and sort of other applied micro methods to study topics that are sort of traditionally kind of in this big picture, more macro sort of mindset of of, of growth focused topics. I, I haven't read this paper myself, but a, a, a listener pointed me to a paper. By Asher and Novasad, um, that where they did a natural experiment um, looking at rural roads and sort of finding that sort of these weren't transformative economically when um, maybe we would, would would think otherwise. So, 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 what do you think about this sort of approach to these sort of growth big picture topics from a micro applied micro lens? Yeah. So, I mean, I have I have uh, two takes I think on this. One is that, and I think both are actually somewhat optimistic. So, the most optimistic is that. Most of these RCTs and you know very micro level uh, studies do not have great external validity. Meaning that you know you look at rural roads in Kenya, it might be a bad thing. You look put them in Uganda, it might be a good thing. I'm I'm making I'm, I'm just using those as made up examples. I don't actually know there's of any studies that are like that. But I was just picking two countries say, that border each other at random. So and that that's the nature of the RCT is you do it in one place. And there, in a sense, there almost shouldn't be external validity because it's happening in a certain context. Now, on the other hand, I think the way the way that you, we should be thinking about them, though, as, is as marginal improvements on our, our knowledge. And as a collection, there have been some real insights that that we've been able to make that, you know, certain types of maybe interventions or something are, are important in many contexts. Now, I think much more importantly when, and this is, this is a point that is much more broad in terms of what we say in the book as well, is that when you think about any type of big picture thing that might lead to economic development. So, you know, one we really focus on, for instance, is the type of institutions that a society is, whether it be political, legal, social, religious, they work or don't to promote economic development only in certain cultural contexts. So democracy, for instance, is the type of thing that has, and I think, you know, it doesn't, it's not too much of a stretch to think why, 
is associated with positive economic outcomes. As you have more representation, presumably some types of limits on what executive power can actually do. These are types of things we often think of as good for economic growth. But democracy works differently in different contexts when you have different types of cultural norms. And this is something I've already talked about, you know, associated with, you know, how we even believe is, are these really fair elections? You know, so, you know, for instance, you know, this is something that autocrats often do is they will actually have quote unquote elections. But, you know, you know, Saddam Hussein gets 100 percent of the vote or something like that. Or, you know, Putin does you know something very similar so th- these are not you know so the the, in- the institutions of a society work very differently and can work very you know very differently in different cultural contexts this is also why you know say a place like the post arab spring and democracies ended up not often working as well and you know a lot of them just kind of reverted back to something that is much less democratic than you know we envision. And I think that the same lesson applies to these types of RCTs that, you know, we can, and and this is the way we should be thinking about them. We should not necessarily always be looking for the most general of solutions to whether it be poverty or, you know, bad political institutions, things like this, because different solutions are going to work in different cultural contexts. That's something that, I, and I believe Mark as well, is convinced is is one of the big lessons that we can kind of when we bring all of these various aspects of the literature together is definitely something we read from 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 this literature that you can really you really need localized knowledge to understand what's going to work. So that's where I, I actually think that RCTs can be extremely valuable, especially if you want to think about the poorest parts of the world. Now, the problem with this is obviously, you know, they're, they're really expensive to run. And if you spend a few hundred thousand dollars or something running running something and show that something does or does not work in a certain village in Kenya, and that's not generally applicable, then yeah, that's a really expensive way to understand how to alleviate poverty in, you know, a place that might have a couple hundred people um, or, yeah, and probably not even alleviate poverty, you know, maybe, you know, alleviate one aspect of poverty. So, yeah, I think that, you know, from a theoretical standpoint, I do think that I'm actually probably more sympathetic to RCTs than many outside of development economics are. So, you know, this is something that, you know, it's, you know, it's very, it's kind of the central way of doing development economics, I think now, you know, and there's just a Nobel given a couple of years ago for this type of work. But I think that when we think about it, you know, in, in its analogous, type of way of thinking about broader things that help economic development, it starts to make a lot more sense. Yeah, I, I think that that was a really interesting interesting answer because this, this is something that I've kind of just been grappling with myself is 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 sort of the sort of RCT dominance versus um, sort of the pushback offered by Pritchett and, and, and others. So I, I think you've, you've sketched out kind of an, uh, a valuable middle ground there. So, so to close, so Gordon Brown, British former British Prime Minister, famously once said that in establishing the rule of law, the first five centuries are always the hardest. So this you know, seems obviously true, but there's also a uh, sort of I think there's sort of a Straussian reading, as Tyler Cowan might say, of of this quote, which suggests that to a significant degree, maybe day to day sort of policy decisions over the long run don't actually matter that much. Yet this is sort of exactly what sort of many economists and institutions like the World Bank, et cetera, are engaged in. So you know maybe the the, the Washington consensus might be necessary, but it's you know clearly not necessarily sufficient. And sort of outside of some extraordinary cases in in modern times, so like 
uh, Singapore, the China sort of created uh, by Deng Xiaoping, we, we, we see very few cases of, of transformative economic growth in, in recent years. So bearing sort of all this in, in, in mind, what, what do you think are sort of the actionable sort of policy implications that can be derived from having an understanding of the history of, of, of modern economic growth that, that you've laid out? Yeah, I mean, so it matters, you know, what pol- who, you know, whose policy you're talking about, right? I mean, I think that there's only so much international organizations like IMF or World Bank can do. They have certain levers that that they can pull, but they're also not, you know, overturning governments or something, right? Where, you know, where, you know, massive government reforms, they they can they can encourage government reforms via some of their levers, but often not the types of ones that we're most interested in because those types of government reforms would require getting certain people out of office that don't want that to happen. And growth growth is not just a, a twistable dial, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think that, you know, the way you just said it is very nice that, you know, we shouldn't be thinking of that there as being any one answer to this question. And, and as, you know, I think I've now said a few times, it's the type of answer is going to differ by 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 society. Now, one thing that I think you know has become clear is that enabling market activity is really important. How we get that is going to differ massively. So in in societies where there for some historical reason or some current reason there are decent constraints on governance there that's when the policy levers from international organizations can be really useful you want big loans so you you can you know do do x y and z within your society you know you know free up some markets things like that in, in those cases i you know i i tend to believe that that's where you, you you can you can get some spurts of growth as you know what was the case you know for some parts of latin america even though there's also really bad stories of course of <laughs> what the what these international organizations, you know, particularly led by the U.S., um, have did in the you know, 70s and 80s. On the other hand, you know, one thing the China cases has shown is that it's not just about having massive constraints on governance. China has grown immensely in the last 40 years, while still being very autocratic, while still repressing rights when it suited them, and being you know extremely repressive to you know say religious minorities. Growth can happen in such a context. You know, you used you know, like the Singapore context before. That's a case where it's not really you know a society where there's massive constraints on executive power. It just so happens that the executive typically uh, favors pro-growth policies, but but you can't be sure that the next one will. Same was true of South Korea. The growth happened in the context of more or less dictatorship in that point. Um, you know, a commonality there though is that there there were movements towards market activity. Now, in the case of a place like Singapore, the internal market is not going to to work. It's just too small of a country. You have to have export-focused type of whether it be production or you know eventually finance things like this that 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 grow an economy. Something could be said to, true of South Korea too. I mean, certainly the South Korean story that uh, our, our take on it and the take of I think the literature would suggest something similar. China, though, you know, on the other hand, has an enormous internal market that you know can more or less you know lead to economic growth just by by w- without without any trade. Even though obviously trade became important there. Now the question is, how do you get that in such a context? 
this is a this is the million dollar question that I, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I don't think we have a very good answer for, and I still don't think we do. And in part, this is because I don't think the China story has been written yet by any means. So the, 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 I think the million dollar question for me, in terms of you know thinking as a historian, economic historian, but also interested in what's going on today w- within you know, the economies of the world. Is what happens in China when growth slows to even something like three percent? There, because what? Because one thing that you can see is, you know, while economies are booming, governments can get away with a lot. Especially autocratic governments can get away with a lot because enough people, especially elites, are satisfied. But even non-elites are satisfied. And the types of things China still does a lot of things that in other contexts would be debilitating to economic growth. You know, especially, you know, I mean, just think about, you know, regulations on social media and media more generally that should have a negative effect on an economic growth. And I think over time it will. But there again, there's so much low hanging fruit that's still there that you can still grow seven, eight percent, even more, at least, you know, in a normal, normal economy while doing so. When growth slows down, even you know three percent would be great by you know Western standards at this point. But when it slows down to the point where you know you you're starting to have people, you know that expected expected much more, not getting that rents going to elites being much weaker. What happens there is the million dollar question because you know one thing that we stress is that historically having some type of limits on government was really important. China throws that to the wind in a sense, you know, because you know, all of these changes are happening in a very non-limited sense. You know, but on the other hand, you know, one thing we briefly go into in the book is that, you know, the Soviet Union was able to, to grow fairly rapidly for some period, at least the beginning, you know, mainly by just pumping, pumping resources into industrial production, not through, you know, obviously the market mechanism. So if you were writing in you know the 60s or something, you wouldn't necessarily be as uh, optimistic about some of the stuff we're saying. But obviously, this didn't last either. It took a while. And that's what I think the point here with China, too, where it's going to just be very interesting to see how this works. And frankly, if it ends up working for China and there needs and there's and China continues to grow at a rapid pace and without any absolute any need for fundamental political change, or I think even more importantly, if it doesn't continue to grow, yet there is no political change and it becomes a middle to upper income country without any real constraint. We need to rethink about what, what, what are the lessons of history and are these just lessons that are extremely context specific to a place with a Western style culture maybe or something like this that, that, that don't appeal. So, I mean, I think in the end, I'm not really throwing my hands up because I'm not saying anything goes here. You know, I'm giving you, I think, a few possible scenarios, some of which will make us really rethink the way we've been thinking about it, others of which would not. And I, you know, and I, I don't necessarily want to make a prediction on this because I think any any academic that's in a sense worth their salt will say, look, when when confronted with new evidence, I might need to change the way I'm thinking about things. And I think that the jury's the jury is just still out. And, you know, if we write this book, you know, maybe a second edition or something or a third edition or whatever, if we're lucky enough to do that in a decade, we might we might very much have to change the way, you know, we've approached some of this stuff as new information comes in. Yeah, I I, I really do think what happens with with 
China in particular, will probably be one of the, if not the most important questions of the 21st century. Agreed. And I think that's a good place uh, to conclude. So Jared, thank you for joining me on the show today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks so much for listening. We love engaging with our listeners, so please always feel free to reach out. Contact information is listed in the show notes. To find out more about the work of the Charter Cities Institute, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org.